James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, is where we're going to spend our time today. My wife Melissa and I, several years ago, we uh, launched out on a family road trip, and this was before the advent of GPS and smartphones, Uh, but she went to her map website, and I went to my map website, and we independently printed off directions to the place we were going. When we got in the car and took off, everything was just fine. Our directions and our car were all going in the same direction until we got to this one important juncture. And my direction said, continue straight on the interstate. And Melissa's directions said, exit off the interstate and take this other interstate. And there was a pretty massive difference between the two directions. And we could not decide which set of directions to follow. And we were both a little territorial over whose directions would be the right directions. And so in the choice between hers and mine, since I'm a grown man and king of my castle, we went with her directions. (laughs) We drove for a while, and then her direction said, exit off the interstate. And we thought, this seems weird. This doesn't get us where we want to go. But who are we to question the directions? So we took off, we took the exit, get off the interstate, and immediately we were on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. And we thought, this doesn't seem right. And the directions said, follow this road for 30 miles. And we thought, oh. We went about two miles and we realized this is not getting paved anytime soon and so we got to find another way. Now, for a fleeting moment, I was so satisfied. <laughs> Until it was pointed out to me that she wasn't wrong, the internet was wrong. And so Melissa's record remains unblemished. But we eventually got where we needed to go. Uh, the direction you go depends on the trustworthiness of the direction giver, right? A a corrupt direction giver will always lead you to a destructive place. Now, the church that James writes to is a church that's full of corruption. Coincidentally, whenever we read these words, it's like looking in a mirror. We find ourselves present among James's audience. From James's letter, we've seen clearly the extent of the corruption of this particular church. The people in this church show favoritism to powerful people, and they put down weak and needy people. They don't care for vulnerable people. They profess faith in Jesus, but they don't live it. They use their speech to destroy people. You'll remember that from chapter 3. They seldom pray, and when they do, it's only for the material goods that they want. And we'll learn in our text today that when it comes to planning for the future, these corrupt people are rejecting God and going in their own direction. It's a direction of destruction. And we've said repeatedly throughout our study of the book of James that the major theme of this letter is whole life devotion to Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be the kinds of people whose entire lives belong to God, then it makes sense that we will devote our futures and our plans to Him as well. This is a lot easier said than done, isn't it? So often we craft our plans for the future and we do so without God in mind. And then our prayer lives become exercises in getting God to serve our schemes 
But there's a better way for you and I to walk into an unknown future. You see, the Christian who trusts completely in Jesus can walk into an unknown future with confidence and comfort in the one who holds the future. Now, the passage we're going to study today gives us two goals. First of all, it it compels us to abandon our godless plans for the future. And then second, it calls us to embrace our sovereign God's plan for our lives, those plans that are known and those plans that are unknown. So if we study this right today, we're going to make a turn. It may be a situational turn. It may be a whole life turn, but either way, it's a turn away from our God-less plans and a turn to the sovereign God of our salvation. So I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 4. We'll start in verse 13, and just remember, if you can, from two weeks ago, last time we were in James, James is coming in hot here. Remember that? Beginning of chapter 4, he's guns a-blazing at these people that he loves, and he loves enough to give hard correction. And so we pick up with that kind of tone and that kind of fervor in verse 13. And here's what James writes. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. It's a brief package, a brief passage, excuse me, it is packed with nuclear intensity. And here's how we're going to approach it this morning, just in three very simple steps. One, James articulates the problem. Two, he explains why living that way is so foolish and so wrong. Three, he gives us the correction. We're just going to go step by step in that fashion through this passage. So let's start with the problem. First of all, the problem in verse 13 for your note-taking purposes, is simply this, planning without submission to God's will. What's the problem? It's planning without submission to God's will. Now, James does not articulate the problem with the clarity he does in other places in his letter. We'll have to do just a little bit of digging to get to it. But look at verse 13 with me. James articulates his problem with Christians who make plans without God. Verse 13, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Now, is James anti-planning? No, that's, that's not the case at all. Is James anti-business or anti-money-making? No, that's not the problem. It's not a sin for God's people to plan or to conduct business or even to make money. But the problem with the plans in verse 13 is that God is not there. Now, there is a God in verse 13, but it's not the God of our salvation. It's the God of self. These people make their plans for their goals without their God. They put themselves in the place of the sovereign one. They assume their own omniscience. 
and they overestimate their power. And so they make these plans without God and launch out in pursuit of them. James expands on the nature of the problem in verses 16 and 17 towards the end of our passage. Look at verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. So not only do these people make plans apart from God, but they brag about it. There's a certain Tower of Babel feel to this passage, to the behavior that James is describing. But he says that that kind of boasting, it's evil. Now, if if I were to ask you to create a list of items that you consider evil, it it wouldn't take a lot of work. It's easy for us to describe behaviors, actions, thoughts and words that we would classify as evil. Would your top 100 list of evil things include boasting and bragging about a self-made godless future? Probably not. Which, for the 84th time in our study in James, was a reminder that James takes our sin far more serious than we do. Not because he's hypersensitive and easily triggered. It is because he sees our sin correctly. For the evil that it is. For the danger that it is to our soul. For the dark place that it comes from. For you and I to plan and think about our future without God is an evil thing. James doesn't stop there. In verse 17, he goes on to just flat out call it sin. Verse 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, he sins. Isn't James just being nitpicky here? Doesn't he need to just lighten up a bit? But not when you consider all the corruption that James has called out in this letter. Corruption present in the church, past. Corruption present in the church, present. This godless planning is the logical end of self-centered Christianity. If you reject the poor, step on the weak, blast people with your words, pray for selfish gain, then it's no surprise that you would think about your future only for how God can serve your plans. And so then it shouldn't surprise us that James calls it sin. Verse 17 is a verse that's often cited when we're discussing the nature of sin, right? Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. The way this verse is often proof-texted, It's when we talk about sins of commission and then sins of omission. Perhaps you've read about this, you've been a part of a dialogue on this. Sins of commission are those bad things we know we shouldn't do, but we do them. We commit the sin. And then sins of omission are the good things we should do, but we don't do them. We omit those good, holy, righteous acts. Those are sins of omission. And the The distinction is made between the two as a way of calling Christians not merely to avoid bad things, but also to do the good thing, the right thing. Now that teaching is correct, but I'm just not positive that this verse, verse 17, is the correct verse from which you should support that argument. Let's keep verse 17 inside James' discussion here. What is James's main point in this text? What is it that a good person ought to do? Well, in this passage, the good thing a person ought to do 
is to trust the sovereign God with our plans for the future. If I don't do that, I sin. No matter how noble or charitable or compassionate my plans are, if they are made without submission to the sovereign will of God, I sin. So, what's our problem as James has articulated it? Our problem is that we plan without submission to the sovereign will of God. We do this often. We do this a lot. Why is it so foolish? It's the second thing we want to look at this morning. Why is living this way so foolish, so unwise? And James lays it out for us in verse 14. In verse 13, he's called out his target audience, those who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. And then look at what he says in verse 14. It is a righteous hammer. He says, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I find in verse 14... Two reasons why we are foolish to approach our futures this way. First of all, James says that you and I, we have limited knowledge. Verse 14, again, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Now, if we were to take a poll, all of us would fall into this category, people who do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Now, you, you know what might could happen you got to go to work, you got a meeting, you got this and that. Those things are on the agenda, but we have no way of mapping out what's going to happen, what's really going to happen tomorrow. What happens so often is that we're so impressed with our knowledge, so impressed with our reasoning and our ability that we just assume that the way I predict things is the way they really are going to go. But even with all the amazing things we're capable of, all the knowledge we possess, we still have finite brains and limited knowledge on everything, everything. Why would we assume that a godless future is going to be good for us when you and I don't even have a clue what will happen tomorrow? Here's a second reason it's foolish for us to live this way. It's because we have finite lives Verse 14, again, he asks the question, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James reminds us that here we are, we're trying to make big plans as if we don't need God, when in reality, our lives are just a mist. Now, this is what James is talking about. Not a pink water bottle specifically, And my water bottle is pink because I'm a dad of girls. That's why. (laughs) But if I pull this little trigger, I break the water bottle. (laughs) That was phenomenal. Sometimes I don't know my own strength. I'm hyped up on cold meds this morning. Oh, that's brilliant. Just brilliant. Did you see the mist when it came out? (laughs) It really did. Look, in in the whole scope, let's focus. You can do this, Busby. Yes, sir, Dad. Okay. In the whole scope of human history, your life is like a mist. What kind of power does this mist have? 
it made a quick appearance. Maybe that's better for the illustration. It was there briefly, and then it was gone, and you probably didn't even see it. But it was there. It was there momentarily. And what power does a spray of mist really have? Maybe just power over frizzy hair. That's what they tell me, and that's about it. But this mist, it has no infinite knowledge, no infinite power. It's limited in scope. It's barely on the radar for a second, and then it's gone. And that's what it's like for you and I. Like the mist, our lives are brief and powerless. We overestimate our autonomy. The truth is human beings are alarmingly ignorant. For all of our advances, all of our improvements in life, we we are people of such limited knowledge. Some examples of that, maybe you're... Hope and trust is in science, and science isn't a bad thing at all. But I read a headline a few months ago. It says this specifically. It said, scientists finally have a decent guess as to why the earth exists. (laughs) Yay, science! (laughs) Called this press conference, we've got a decent guess as to why the earth exists. So I've got all these initials after my name to tell you a decent guess. Maybe your hope is more in the lawmaking types. And uh, last year in West Virginia, lawmakers passed a law legalizing the sale of raw milk, unpasteurized milk. It had previously been illegal due to um, concerns for health and sickness and all of that. But they passed the law. The governor signed it uh, into law and then To celebrate, the lawmakers rose a glass and drank raw milk together. And the next day, they were all sick. (laughs) Now, now if this were Kansas after church, I would have a line of people waiting for me to say, I drank raw milk as a kid, and nothing ever happened to me. Don't mess with the illustration. The point is this. Our limited knowledge, our finite power, do not qualify us to make plans apart from a powerful, all-knowing, and loving God. We assume that if we make the plan, then the plan is secure. And there's a certain comfort in having a plan, a certain comfort from you and I mapping out our days in our ways, for our goals. But if I can't even predict what will come tomorrow, and if I have all the cosmic force of a spray of water, then what comfort do I really have in my own plans? James speaks to a specific type of person in this passage. He speaks to the bragging persons who are comfortable in their godless plans. But there's another side to this coin, another thing we ought to consider. Not only do we skirt God's sovereignty when we make our own plans with confidence in ourselves, but we also skirt God's sovereignty when we look at our situations with gloom and despair. The arrogant person and the afflicted person have this one thing in common, We often look to the future without consideration for God's sovereignty. So when we face hardship, it's easy for us to assume that God is also lost in the chaos with us. He's been dethroned and now life is uncertain. 
And it's easy for us to forget the cross of Christ when our plans get turned upside down. I think there's a lesson here for us as a church, especially in the wake of our goodbye to Pastor Dave Como. When Dave announced that he was moving to a new church, there was a collective groan in our church, and that's to be expected. Anytime we say goodbye to people we love, it's going to hurt. But in the midst of the goodbye, we've also expressed perhaps some distrust in God's care for us. After all, we've sent off so many people in recent years. Let's count them up. We've said goodbye to Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Seth, Pastor Godwin, uh, our beloved Sandy Akate stepped down from her position in our children's ministry. We're grateful that Sandy and Ton are still a vibrant part of our church, but that's still a leadership change, a transition. We've also said goodbye to two high-caliber office managers, Nancy Lundquist and Betty Ann Wood. That's a lot of transition, and so perhaps we might think, what's wrong with us? Maybe we might say... I'm not going to get close to any more staff because they're just going to leave us anyways. But that's not faith. It's not faith when we tell God the only way you can guide me is in the way of stability. Stability without God, it's just a comfortable damnation. So it's foolish for you and I to think that in our finite minds and our limited power, we'll produce a better plan than God does. Whether it's a plan for my day-to-day or a plan for our church, no one loves this church more than God does. You know that, right? And, and it doesn't matter whether we are in a season of stability or a season of transition. God takes care of his flock perfectly. So it's not a time for us to despair and wring our hands and worry It's a time for us to praise God and walk in the fullness of joy that he takes care of his people perfectly. So why would we not want to live a godless future with godless plans because our knowledge is so limited, our lives are so brief and powerless? But James gives us the solution to all of this. Third, what is the fix for the problem? And the fix, quite simply, is this. It is faith in all of God's plans. See, James doesn't simply call out the problem. He gives us the solution in verse 15. Look at what he says in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, we have to be very precise with James's uh, solution here. We, we have to be very precise as to what it is not. So James is not telling us to avoid planning. He's not telling us to avoid business or money-making or travel or, or things like that. Likewise, James is not putting some sort of linguistic legalism into our everyday conversation. As if you and I have to tack the phrase of verse 15 on the front of every discussion about future matters. So someone asks you after church today, hey, where are you going for lunch? The wrong application of this would be to say, if the Lord wills and we live, we're going to KFC. That would not be the right interpretation of verse 15. But rather, James is pointing us in the direction of whole life 
trust in our God who holds time in his hands, who knows the start and the end of all things, who has orchestrated your steps and ordered your life, he calls us to trust in that God. Remember throughout James's letter, what is spoken reveals what is believed. What comes out is what's on the inside. And so if I'm the type of person that's going to say, verse 15, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that, I'm a person who is believing God, trusting Him, and that's going to be seen in the way I speak, the way that I live. So how do we trust in the sovereignty of God? Two very simple ways. First, we trust God when we live according to His known will. We live according to His known will. God's will is not altogether mysterious and unknowable. Far from it. God has revealed His will to us, and this should guide our planning for our futures. How do we know God's will? Not through mysterious moments of prayer. We know it through His Word. This is God's voice, once spoken and still speaking. And in these pages, we have the revelation of God for our lives. So you can and should make plans for your future, plans that align with God's known will. And we know that will when we devour this word. God's will is for the spread of the gospel. God's will is for our continued sanctification. God's will is for holy and happy marriages. God's will is for joyful, Christ-honoring singleness. God's will is for parenting with wisdom and grace. God's will is for suffering with eyes set on Him. God's will is for work done in honesty and integrity. There's so much we know about God's will. And when we trust God's way enough to live it, There's such a burden lifted off of us. We don't have to carry the pressure of making things work on our own. God takes care of all of it. And so that's why I'm so glad that today we've been able to make the announcement of the capital campaign when we're in this passage. Our goal here is not coldly a fiscal one. Our goal is the announcement of the gospel, doing what we can now to amplify our gospel voice on the South Shore and beyond. And so it's right that Stephen would pray the way he did, that Jim would articulate our goals the way he did. Our mission has always been the announcement of the gospel and making disciples of all people. That goal hasn't been impeded, hasn't been made less because we've had a mortgage to pay. We've given every bit of energy and effort we have to accomplishing that goal. So we trust God to shape us, to mold us as we follow His plan in every area of our lives as a church and as individuals. His known will is to be lived. Second, We trust God when we submit to his unknown plan. You know, there's a lot of things God doesn't tell you about. A lot. We can live in confidence when we know that God is in control. You see, submitting to his sovereignty doesn't mean God will then unfold every detail of every step ahead of us. But instead, confidence in God means that even though we don't know what's coming, we trust the one who does. This is the way it has always been for God's people. Abraham, Moses, Naomi, and Ruth, Esther, all examples of people 
who had a call from God without all the details laid out. And they step forward in trust in him because comfort is not in the details. Comfort is in the God who is with us. So when we don't know the plan, it's no problem for us still to say yes to God because we know him. He is the omniscient one. He is the omnipotent one. He is the loving God. And if he is powerful enough and knowledgeable enough and loving enough to bring your life to the gospel, will he not also take care of you on Tuesday? Absolutely he will. So I don't have to know all of God's plans, all the details for what's ahead to trust in the God who has loved me this way. So this should settle our stressed hearts and our fearful spirits. It ought to increase our worship. It ought to increase and purify our trust in him. Look, our lives may be a mist, but it is a mist that Christ died for. So it may be time for you to relinquish some control and rest in the good plans of your loving God. So James has addressed what is a very serious problem for us today. It's the problem of planning for our future without submission to the sovereignty of God. It's putting ourselves in the seat of the sovereign and assuming God will serve us in the things that we do. And why is that a foolish way to live? Because we're finite. We don't know things. We think pink water bottles will hold up, but they never do. They always break. Our knowledge is so limited, and our lives are so short and so small. But when we trust our loving Lord completely, then we're going to live in the comfort and peace of his plans. I was in fourth grade. My brother Rory was in third grade. We lived in a neighborhood that had all this new construction, and Rory and I decided we wanted to build a clubhouse. We had drawn some designs with gun turrets and whatnot on the corners. And so there's all this lumber just laying around. So we walked across the street. We grabbed some two-by-fours. We dragged it back over to our garage. We pulled out hammer and nails. We have no construction experience, just aspirations. And we started to build a wall. So we laid two boards side-by-side and then we just we tried to nail diagonal from one board to the next. And we did that as long as our chubby, bleeding fingers would allow us. And we eventually had together all these pieces of wood that I guess in a way it looked like a wall. It looked like a medieval uh, instrument of torture, all these nails sticking out. But still, it's wall-esque. And, and then our dad came out to the garage and uh, he said, hey, where'd you get all this wood? And we pointed across the street, and then he closed the garage really fast. <laughs> and we told our dad, look, we, we're trying to build a clubhouse, but we need some help. And so our young father grabbed the hammer and said he would help, and we were excited. And the first thing he did was not to praise us for our wall construction, but he took the hammer and he began to rip the nails out of the wall that we had built. One, all the time we had put into it, he's just ripping nails out. The first thing he had to do was deconstruct what our little brains had put together. 
And we didn't understand it. It was upsetting at first, but then our dad began to build a frame, and we understood. That's how a wall goes up. That's how all this works. I wonder if it's that way for you this morning in your relationship with the Lord. You might be facing a particular situation in which you and your limited power and means have crafted a plan, tried to put things together in the way you thought best. But maybe in your surrender to God today, his first step will be to begin deconstructing the plans you've made apart from him. It's not because he's mad at you. It's because he loves you enough to give you what is best. So you may be facing a particular situation in which you need to release control and trust your loving Lord to guide you. Maybe it's not a situation. Maybe it's your entire life. You've made your own way. You've done your own thing your whole life. But brother, don't you know your life is just a mist? And sister, don't you realize that you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow? Don't you remember what James said at the very beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. He will take care of you. He will guide your steps. He will protect you. He will get you through the grief and the gloom and the hopelessness. He will take you to the good place. He will never leave you nor forsake you. James has given us the wisdom of the ages in this passage, wisdom that has guided God's people through slavery and seas and wilderness and homelessness and war and death and the cross and trials of every kind. It's the wisdom that comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because who is like you? No one. No one in knowledge, no one in power, no one in love is like you. So thank you that in all of your love, your knowledge of our sin, you have used your power to make a way for us to be rescued from the penalty of that sin so that we could live this day and every day in the comfort of our salvation. Father, draw us near to you for that salvation today. Guide us in repentance from our self-made plans. And Lord, deconstruct whatever has to be deconstructed. Lead us in the way of life everlasting. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your good and perfect care for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.